Hi, I'm Louis Pitacek, a neurologist and scientist at uh, the Department of Neurology at the University of California, San Francisco, and I'll be talking about genetics of sleep and circadian behavior. Dr. Fu and I have spent a large part of our careers studying human genetic diseases where mutations in single genes can cause fragile X, myotonic dystrophy, epilepsy, muscle disease, etc. And through study of these families, it's been possible to map the genes that cause the phenotype and thereby study the proteins in the laboratory in test tubes and uh, physiological experiments to understand normal function, normal biology that's occurring in the human organism as well as pathophysiological processes that contribute to disease. A change in direction for our research occurred when we decided to embark on studying the genetics of human behavior. Behavioral phenotypes are very challenging to characterize at a clinical level, uh, and this has made finding genes for behaviors very difficult. But we felt that it was possible because of families that we identified that have circadian sleep behaviors that are genetic and passed from generation to generation. Sleep behavior is very complicated. There is a biological tendency for us to go to sleep and wake up, but to emphasize the challenges of studying human behavior, we often override our uh, biological tendencies because we have to stay up to meet a deadline, to study for an exam, uh, or uh, to spend time with our families, even though we might be very tired and want to go to sleep. We drink compounds like alcohol and coffee, which affect our sleep. Sometimes we take medicines that affect our sleep. And so there are lots of different things that we do that are not listening to our biological tendency to sleep and wake, but rather overriding our biological systems. But again, the goal here is to identify genes and mutations that cause genetic behaviors in humans with the long-term goal of better understanding biology and, in some cases, diseases. Now, we've evolved on this beautiful planet, the third planet from the sun, and as a result of this and the fact that this planet turns on its axis every 24 hours with corresponding changes in light and dark and also temperature, Everything about us has evolved so that we can function optimally in an environment where the light and dark cycles are changing every 24 hours along with the temperature cycles. And it's not surprising that through evolution, all living organisms on this planet have also evolved in such a way that they can function maximally or function optimally in this changing environment. We know, for example, that all kinds of different things change and oscillate in our own bodies, in the bodies of uh, other animals, for example. Uh, we have a, our deepest sleep in the wee hours of the morning. Our body temperature is going up and down and reaching a, reaches its low point at about 4.30 in the morning, on average, that is, for humans. Uh, and, and our pain thresholds are oscillating, our immune system function is oscillating, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the system that uh, we have evolved, uh, we call the circadian system. This is from the uh, word circadian, uh, Latin words meaning about a day or around a day. 
So that means that this refers to these oscillating systems that are cycling every 24 hours. In the center of the, the circadian system for all living things is a clock which is ticking inside the brain in the case of humans. And this is the rhythm generator that is oscillating on a 24-hour period. However, because of changing day length and also uh, changes in uh, time zones, for example, when we travel, we need a mechanism whereby we can reset the clock, and that is called entrainment. Entrainment is largely uh, done through light coming in through the eyes, although other things can entrain the clock, including changes in temperature, exercise, and also feeding. Then, the things that the, the, the clock, while oscillating in our brain, is then telling certain things in our body to oscillate. And so these are called pacemaker outputs. That is, our clock then is regulating our sleep-wake cycle, our clock is regulating our immune system function, our clock is regulating our body temperature rhythms, and, and so forth. And then in the periphery, in, in our body, the rest of our body, we also have oscillators. Individual cells that we could biopsy from, from your skin, for example, can oscillate when we grow them in a culture system in the laboratory. And using different paradigms with altered feeding schedules, for example, we can dissociate the rhythm of enzymes in the liver from the wake uh, and sleep rhythms that are coming out of the brain. So taken together, this, we call this the mammalian circadian system, the circadian timing system that regulates all elements of our biology and metabolism. Anatomically, we know that, shown here in this part, uh, this uh, section of a brain, that the nucleus right here, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which contains about 10,000 neurons on each side of the brain, that this is the master regulator of the clock. Uh, this is the the part of the brain that's regulating and coordinating all of the different things that are going on metabolically in our bodies to help us survive and, and prosper. Now, one way that we can look at circadian rhythms in mice is to put them into a cage with a running wheel and record the activity of running on the wheel. And when we do that, as you can see here, under conditions of light and dark, you can see that this activity shown by these black marks begins at approximately the same time every day. And that, the, the line then uh, is a vertical line, and that represents a circadian period of approximately 24 hours. And when the lights are going on and off every 12 hours, these mice will live on a 24-hour day. However, if we turn the lights off, as we do at, at this point, and now continue to record, you can see that the mice begin getting on the wheel a little bit earlier each day, and that signifies the fact that mice have a circadian period length that's slightly less than 24 hours. Shown here for an individual mouse is a, a period length of 23.7 hours, and that's average for a mouse of this type, a C57 black 6 mouse. Now, I've already mentioned, but I'd like to emphasize that the clock in our brain is regulating not only our sleep-wake cycle, but it's affecting our learning and memory, it's affecting our GI function, our gastrointestinal tract, 
our heart and lung function, immune function, cell cycle regulation. And, and so the clock is tied very intimately to all elements of our normal biology. And therefore, when it's not working properly, uh, it can also contribute to diseases of all different systems in our body, as I'll mention later on. I'd like now to also emphasize the difference between the circadian clock, which I've described here, and sleep, which is a separate process, but it's intimately related to the circadian clock. Clock is something ticking in our brain that even if we turn off all the lights and have no time cues for the day, that will relentlessly oscillate day to day and keep our body temperature oscillating, our melatonin rhythms oscillating, and our sleep-wake cycles oscillating, for example. Sleep, however, is somewhat different. We sleep approximately eight hours uh, each day. But if we go for a period of time without sleeping, that is sleep deprivation, we can be very tired and fall asleep in the, er in the morning when ordinarily we would, we would be waking up. So sleep deprivation can lead to overriding the biological tendency to wake. Uh, because we've accumulated something that we, we don't understand at all, but something that we call sleepiness. And so, Berberly, uh, many years ago, described this two-process model, whereby we get the circadian time oscillating like this in a uh, sinusoidal uh, manner, making us sleepy at night, waking in the morning, sleepy at night, waking in the morning. And then on top of that, there's something that we call process S. And this is something that accumulates as a function of how long we've been awake. And so as we've been up longer and longer, we become more and more sleepy. And then as we sleep, this process S, or this sleepiness, whatever that really is, we don't understand, dissipates as a function of the time that we are sleeping. So shown on the right side of this slide is increased sleep pressure, as the, uh, is the terminology we use, to describe a sleepiness that comes from extended sleep deprivation, despite the fact that the clock continues to, to oscillate relentlessly inside our brains. And so this person could be sleepy this whole time, even though the clock is now saying, be awake, for example. So for a long time, we've recognized that there are differences in the tendencies for people to sleep and wake in the general population. And for today's purposes, I'm going to refer to the conventional sleepers as people who have their sleep onset. They fall asleep around 11 or 12 at night. I think that's pretty average. And who wake up perhaps at 7 or 8 in the morning. We recognize that there are people in the general population who we, we refer to as night owls or delayed sleep phase because they can't fall asleep until much later at night. And consequently, they want to stay asleep. They want to stay in bed until much later in the morning. These people get in trouble sometimes because they can't fall asleep early and yet they often have to wake up at a proscribed time because of their job, because of school, and other responsibilities. Now, people who are truly retinally blind can actually drift in time. And this uh, is the result of the loss of any light cues into the clock that, we, that I mentioned earlier that can help us to reset the clock each day. 
And then I'm going to focus most of, uh, or much of the attention today talking about these morning larks. And these are the individuals who spontaneously wake up very early in the morning and then tend to go to sleep much earlier. So they sleep the same quantity, the same amount of time as a conventional sleeper, but their sleep bout is shifted forward. So we call this advanced sleep phase in the same way that we would call the night owls delayed sleep phase. The sleep bout is advanced in the case of ASP or delayed in the case of the night owls or DSP relative to the solar day. And the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the part of the brain that is the master regulator of the clock, when we disrupt that surgically in, in rodents or in non-human primates, we know that that leads to arrhythmia, sleeping on and off through different times of the day without a consolidated bout, typically during the dark phase of day. Now, we also recognize that there are individuals who, are, who can stay up to a, 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 the time that a conventional sleeper would stay up, but who wake very early in the morning. And this is because there are some people who require a lot less sleep than the average person, and we call these natural short sleepers. There are also natural long sleepers who are not lazy people, but rather they're people who absolutely require more sleep than average to perform at a normal uh, high level. Now, a real breakthrough for us in this area was when we identified families that have a genetic form of morning larkism, or advanced sleep phase, we call it familial advanced sleep phase, FASP. Delayed sleep phase are the night owls, or familial delayed sleep phase. And we also have families who are familial natural short sleepers. All of these families have a mutation in a gene that's traveling from generation to generation and leading them to be morning larks, night owls, or short sleepers. So our work in this area first began when a 69-year-old woman came to the attention of our colleague Chris Jones, a clinical sleep neurologist, because she had a lifelong history of waking up extremely early in the morning and going to sleep very early at night. When she was a young woman, she would uh, wake up spontaneously at 3 or 4 in the morning and would be very tired around dinner time and struggle to stay up uh, until 8, 9, 10 o'clock. As a 69-year-old woman, she was already sleeping uh, often at dinner time and waking up spontaneously at midnight or one in the morning. She had had this trait forever and she didn't like the trait, uh, but she came to see our colleague Chris Jones because she noticed the same trait not only in her daughter but in her granddaughters and wondered if there was anything that could be done for them. Study of this family and this woman who's signified by the arrow here uh, led to uh, uncovering of this very large pedigree. As you'll see, the, there are many circles and squares. The circles represent women. The squares represent men. The ones that are shaded in are men and women who have this trait, familial advanced sleep phase, early morning uh, awakening. And there are some people who, we are, who are clearly unaffected, and then there are others who we were uncertain of, and we called these uh, undetermined, as, as shown below. So as you can see, this is a very strong trait segregating or traveling through many generations of this very large Utah pedigree, where approximately 50% of 
children of affected individuals are affected themselves by this morning lark trait. We began by collecting a lot of clinical data. First of all, sleep logs. We asked these individuals to keep track of their sleep times. Horn-Osberg questionnaire is a questionnaire that allows us to assess the tendency of someone to be a morning lark versus a night owl. We had all of these individuals uh, interviewed by a psychologist with expertise in sleep. And we also performed a Beck depression inventory since major depression can also affect our sleep. And we wanted to make sure that we were uh, not uh, misdiagnosing people because they had some other problem like uh, depression, which can lead to very early morning awakening. And then all of these individuals were uh, evaluated by uh, myself or uh, mainly by Chris Jones, our colleague at the University of Utah. So what we found is that to be affected, we, we, we set up this classification criteria where we require that people can fall asleep spontaneously at 8.30 or before. Now, frequently, these individuals will struggle to stay up later than that, but they can easily fall asleep by 8.30 in the evening, which is the time of day, dinner time through 8 or 8.30, when we're least likely to sleep. We required that they only had one major sleep episode per day. That is, they didn't have some funny sleep pattern. We required that it began before the age of 40 years because... As we get older, it is normal for many people to become more early bird in their phenotype. And we also require that this was not a phenotype that was uh, supported or brought out by taking a lot of light, having a lot of bright light in the morning or drinking a lot of coffee early in the morning. This is a phenotype that's being driven by the, the, the innate biological tendency of these individuals. And so then we brought a subset of this uh, of affected and unaffected individuals from this large family into the clinical research center where we studied them on a weekend where we could control the lights and the telephone and everything else. And we allowed them to go to sleep when, and ask them to sleep when they really felt like it and to wake up, uh, obviously, when they uh, felt like it in the morning. We required that the lights be dim after 4 p.m. We measured melatonin core body temperature, actigraphy. We measured activity as a surrogate for wakefulness, uh, with inactivity being a surrogate for sleep. But we also perform polysomnography. This is EEG test of the brain, measuring brain waves, where we can tell when a person actually falls asleep and when they uh, technically wake up. And then we did a test called the multiple sleep latency test, which is a test of how well rested these individuals are after they've woken up, regardless of whether they're morning, uh, early morning risers or uh, more conventional sleepers. And here's what we found. Uh, we measured total sleep time. We measured the pattern of the sleep as assessed by the brain waves. We measured sleepiness, the MSLT, or multiple sleep lat latency test, for the next day following uh, sleep in the clinical research center. What we found was that uh, individuals, regardless of whether they were affected or unaffected, had essentially normal sleep quality, and they had equal amounts of sleep quantity or length of total sleep. So the actual sleep itself was not changed. What was changed, as I show in the next slide, 
was the onset of their sleep and the offset of their sleep when they awoke early in the morning. The affected individuals shown in the second column here were going to sleep at approximately 7.25, waking at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, and their sleep architecture is all shown here. What we showed was that the onset of sleep in the evening was much earlier for individuals who are affected by FASP, and that they woke spontaneously much earlier in the morning, despite having completely normal sleep quality and quantity when compared to controls. And in one individual, the first 69-year-old woman who I mentioned, we measured uh, her sleep and her temperature rhythms, melatonin rhythms, while she was living in uh, an apartment with no cues to the time of day. This is a modern-day, one of the modern-day cave experiments that uh, you may have heard about. And show here the temperature rhythm, which is... uh, shifting a little earlier each day. That is to say, her period is a little less than 24 hours. It's about 23.3 hours. Now, normal humans, conventional uh, sleeping humans, have a period of slightly longer than 24 hours, 24.3 hours. And so this woman has a period that's a full hour shorter than normal conventional sleepers. So in summary, By studying this family, we showed that sleep quality and quantity were normal, that the sleep-wake times, melatonin rhythms, temperature rhythms, and everything else that we measured were all advanced earlier by four to six hours, and finally, that in this one subject, that her circadian period was a full hour shorter than an age and gender-matched control. And this was reported in 1999, And again, I find this rather remarkable. Despite that these individuals live among us, it had not been recognized nor reported until 1999 when Chris Jones and we uh, reported this family and two others like it. And this uh, set us on our way to, to begin characterizing the genetics of this phenotype in these human families. Now, why is this important? It's interesting to understand why and how we sleep, of course, but it also has real implications for human health. We know that when there's dysregulation of the clock, when the clock is not working properly or synchronized properly, that this can contribute to sleep disorders, to depression and other uh, affective disorders, to pain syndromes, to stroke and heart attacks, Uh, and as well as other uh, phenotypes, including cancer. So chronic sleep deprivation, as well as desynchrony of the clock, or being out of sync with our clock, as happens often, for example, with shift workers who chronically work the night shift. Uh, For example, uh, as a nurse uh, who's constantly working the night shift, uh, she will be at increased risk for having breast cancer compared to a a nurse who's working the day shift chronically. And so to date, we've collected a large number of families. We now have 90 families with familial advanced sleep phase. And let me note also that we've shown in a population-based study that FASP, which had never been recognized prior to 1999 when we published the first paper, that this affects 0.5% of the population. That is to say, one in 200 people have a familial form of ASP. And because for many of these people, it's not a problem at all, many of them feel 
virtuous for being the morning uh, uh, lark or for being the early bird that gets the worm, uh, they never see physicians. It's only when people don't like this phenotype that they seek out uh, help from physicians and why the first woman who came to our attention came to see our colleague, Chris Jones. So this is a pretty common phenotype and we've got lots of families. We also have approximately 30 families with a strong night owl phenotype and over 50 families who have a genetic form of this natural short phenotype. And to date, through a lot of hard work in genetics, we've found 15 to 20 putative mutations or mutations that we've proven to be causative, 15 to 20. So a small minority of these 90 families have mutations in the kinds of genes that we know are important for regulating the circadian clock and about which Dr. Fu will talk in, a, in the next uh, section. At the same time, we found three genes and three mutations that regulate human sleep and sleep length. So these three mutations lead to individuals who sleep four to six hours per night and feel well-rested and perform at a very high level. And so what this tells us is that despite a tremendous amount of wonderful work in the genetics of circadian clock in other organisms like fruit fly or like mice, that there's still a huge amount for us to learn from human genetics in the many, not only from the families that we've studied and where we've cloned genes, but also more excitingly from the ones uh, where we haven't found mutations in any of the usual suspects where there's, there are new genes to discover and new pathways in the biology of circadian regulation and sleep for us to learn about. And so it's not surprising that some things are conserved all the way from fruit flies to humans, but we are also unique as humans and have different kinds of uh, biology that, that have evolved in our species that we can only begin to study uh, through the study of human families. Now let me just uh, talk briefly about some other phenotypes. We know that sleep and circadian function are linked to all kinds of normal biology and that disruption can lead to increased risks for many diseases. But I'd li like to give a couple of examples of really exciting families that, that have not only familial advanced sleep uh, or other phenotypes, but but uh, those kinds of phenotypes linked to non-circadian, non-sleep phenotypes. This was the second family in, uh, that we studied and led to the identification of the second human circadian rhythm gene. This is a family collected by our colleague Bob Shapiro in Vermont that has familial advanced sleep phase. They are very early sleepers and they wake up very early in the morning compared to the unaffected ind individuals in this family who go to sleep at approximately 11.30 and wake up at 8 in the morning. So we've cloned the gene, and Dr. Fu will talk about this, uh, and identified the mutation that causes FASP in this family. Um, but in addition, all of the affected individuals in this family who all carry a mutation in a gene called casein kinase 1 delta, all of these individuals also have asthma and migraine with aura. And so a very interesting question is, are these phenotypes, asthma and migraine with aura, which are very common in the general population, are they coincidentally occurring in the six individuals here who have FASP, 
Or is this mutation actually causing those phenotypes in these pe- people? And we have gone on to show that the mutation in this gene is actually causing the migraine with aura phenotype. Uh, and uh, we still don't know whether or not this mutation causes the asthma phenotype. Here's another interesting family. These individuals were first characterized as FASP because they're early morning risers. Uh, You can see that they're waking up at 3 or 4 in the morning, even on vacation, when they have an opportunity to sleep in. But we went on to show that they actually are able to stay up pretty late, too, and so they have a component of short sleep as well. And the affected individuals in this family have very severe depression and anxiety, which is helped by Lexapro in in these individuals. This is an anti-depression drug that benefits many patients with with depression. And so let me just tell you that once we identified the gene that causes the circadian phenotype in this family, we then began to study that mutation and the mice that carry this mutation and have accumulated some evidence suggesting that the depression phenotype in this family might actually be caused by the mutation in the circadian gene. So there's still a lot more work to do, but this is what everybody expects, that there will be very intimate connections between the clock and sleep and other phenotypes, in this case like depression or migraine with aura, perhaps asthma, et cetera, et cetera. And so I made reference early to the Berberly two-process model where the circadian oscillator that is going up and down and making us sleep and wake is interacting with another process of sleepiness that we don't understand, but sleepiness that accumulates as a function of how long we've been up. But I'd like to add another element to that model, and and perhaps you could think about it as a a three-process model of sleep. Through evolution, it makes sense that Mother Nature would reuse different uh, pieces of biology to regulate related and interconnected uh, processes like sleep and wakefulness. We know, and from studies in flies and mice and our own studies in humans, a lot about the genetics of the circadian clock and why it oscillates in a day and night kind of rhythm. We also are beginning to learn something from studies in human families about what regulates human sleep. We still understand very little about sleep, despite the fact that it is something that most of us do for approximately a third of our lives. But through evolution, other behaviors like uh, like our uh, energy level have to oscillate in a circadian way as well. When we wake up in the morning, to be successful, we have to go out and find mates and uh, make our families, begin our families. We need to hunt and gather and find food. Uh, We need to protect ourselves from... uh, dangers and, and uh, survive uh, through the day and, and night. But to get restful sleep that helps us to perform well again tomorrow, three things have to happen. We have to have our clock telling us that we're sleepy. We have to accumulate something during the day because we've been up that we call sleepiness that helps reinforce that sleep phenotype. And finally, we have to let go of our concerns about hunting and gathering, uh, finding mates and everything else, 
and let ourselves go that, so that we can actually fall asleep. And so we think that this makes a, a strong argument, a strong teleologic argument, that some of the machinery that's important for the circadian clock and some of the machinery that's important for the sleep homeostatic process in our brain are also going to be the kinds of machineries and biology that regulate our behavior, our behavioral activation, our affect, and so forth. And that through evolution, uh, these pathways have been retooled in different ways, not only to regulate the clock, sleep, but also behaviors like, uh, like our affect. Finally, I'd like to acknowledge uh, my longtime collaborator, Ingwei Fu, in her laboratory. Chris Jones, our sleep colleague at the University of Utah, and sources of funding which have made uh, all of this work possible. <laughs>